Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The federal government publishes a lot of information about its spending and its programs. The trouble is, finding the exact details about any program you might care about can be a major research project. That's finally changing. Last week, the Office of Management and Budget rolled out the first-ever government-wide inventory of all federal programs, most of them anyway. Joining me with the details, Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Jared, let's begin with what have they actually built here? So it is called the Federal Program Inventory, and very interestingly, Tom, um, that there's really no new data involved in this project. One of the most fascinating things about what OMB's actually pulled off here is they're not requiring a whole bunch of new submissions from individual federal agencies. Virtually everything in this database comes from the existing uh, data feeds that go into usaspending.gov and sam.gov. What they've done here is consolidate all of that into a, I will say, a very well-done federal website that is searchable, that allows you to go in and search by different types of programs that allows you to search by the name of a program um, or, or drill down into you know different attributes of a particular kind of program that you might care about. And importantly, then see performance data that's connected to each of those individual programs. So something that's been in the works for a very, very long time. OMB has uh, finally pulled it off. But uh, as we wrote about last week, definitely not the end of the road for this initiative. Because you're reporting that everything that is called a program in the government or by the government is not actually in this inventory. Correct. What they've what they've collected so far is the vast majority of annual federal spending. It's uh, just 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 shy of four and a half trillion dollars is what's in the inventory right now, spread across two thousand three hundred and eighty eight different programs. And what's represented in the inventory right now is just federal assistance listings. But that makes up a surprising amount to people like you and me who spend a lot of our time focusing on federal contracting. That makes up the lion's share of the federal budget if you just look at those federal assistance programs. I think what OMB has long recognized going back to the years when they, when they started these pilots back in the 2000-2001 time frame is those federal assistance listings were a logical place to start, not only because it makes up such a huge chunk of the federal spending pie, but because those domestic assistance programs tend to have the clearest connections between budget information, program information, and outcomes. They're very clearly spelled out for each one of these assistance listings, or at least most of them. One of the challenges when you look at the overall federal budget is there's no clear definition of what a program is. In fact, as I was looking through for doing some research for this story, I was surprised to learn that there was really no coherent definition of what a federal program is up until the 70s. And it can be harder to define what, depending on what kind of program you're talking about, whether you're talking about a defense program, for instance, none of which is in this inventory yet, or like I said, the much easier to categorize federal assistance listings. Right. A program can be primarily something that is an acquisition effort, or it can just have small acquisition associated with something larger, like a spending program for assistance, in which it's mainly appropriated funds for a specific purpose that the government gives out. But the only contracting that be connected with it would be you know, incidental to the operation of the uh, of the grants. Yeah, and one of the things that can make these assistance programs, as we said, a lot of them, 2,388, they're not necessarily all individual line items in agency budgets. So, you, you know, they're hard to track down through budget information. But what, what Congress can do now and what individual agency leaders who are involved in designing these programs uh, can do now for the first time ever, which is really important, is go into this inventory 
category, search for the specific types of programs that they're interested in, see you know what exists already, look at the individual performance data for those programs, and then kind of use that to make decisions about do we need a new program in this area? Should we start consolidating some of the existing programs for this particular category or purpose? And it, it's, it, it really may end up being a pretty powerful tool, again, both on the Hill and at the agency level for, for program design and, and evaluation of those outcomes. And what took them so long? You're reporting this really was ordered by the Government Performance and Results Act back in 2010, early on in the Obama administration. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I wrote that in our story last week. I said it, it took 13 years. And then a lot of our readers who are much more seasoned in this area pointed out, oh, it's been going on a, for much longer than that. This is kind of the holy grail of program data and has been for, for quite some time, really going back to the 50s, some people told me. But but yeah, as, as far as why this is all coming together now, I, I think it's been a steady drumbeat of pressure from Congress, from the Government Accountability Office, and then really a commitment on OMB's part to really drill down into the details of all the complex things that need to happen to get this done. OMB really started uh, digging into the nitty-gritty starting in the 2000-2001 timeframe when they came up with a detailed implementation plan and really described to the federal government and to OMB itself why this was so important after all of those years of of GAO talking about why it was important. And I will say, you know, that some of those program design and, and funding decision uh, abilities that I was talking about with the database, that that's that's what OMB sees as the real value here. A lot of what GAO has been saying over the years is one of the things this is going to let you do once you finally have this inventory in place is detect program duplication and potentially get rid of things that are duplicative. Um, you know, I know GAO likes to mention that a lot in its in its uh, high-risk reports, for example. I asked OMB about that, if they see that as an objective, and they were a little hesitant to go there because they really don't know what kind of duplication folks are going to find. And, and, you know, duplication is also sometimes in the eye of the beholder. That sort of answers my next question. This is primarily intended for internal governmental use, or could it be useful to people visiting from the outside and trying to find something to help their business or their home or their or whatever. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a really important point, Tom, and I have focused a lot on the internal government uses. But but OMB's hope is that this ends up being really useful as well to folks like potential grant recipients so they can see what kinds of programs already exist out there. You know, it can be a little hard to search for uh, in the system for awards management to see what sorts of things are available in terms of grants for the particular kind of thing you might be trying to fund. You, you, you know, you got to be looking at SAM at the exact right time, et cetera. In contrast, this inventory will show you what the government historically has spent on a particular program or category of programs historically. And, and the data is pretty up to date as far as these things go. The, the, the data sources, the main ones, SAM and, um, and USAspending.gov are being scraped once a month. So you've got pretty up to date data. They've got quite a bit of information about fiscal 2024 in there already. Yes, because the government has a history of starting these type of projects, member data.gov started right. with a lot of fanfare and kind of fizzled. Is there a sustainability plan for this for perpetuity? Yeah, I don't know about perpetuity, but but OMB really does see this as um, a milestone in the sense that it's the fundamental building block that they want to continue to build off of. One of the main things they want to focus in on is, is again, this area of how do you find pro- d- define programs. They've relied on 
agencies to, to kind of help make decisions about how to group things together into the line items that exist in the inventory now. There's going to be a lot of refinement over that over time, probably, as things get combined into a quote-unquote program or split apart into multiple programs in the way that they're categorized now. So that's one thing. Another thing, going back to what GAO thinks needs to happen here, is, is a big missing area so far here is tax expenditures. So this is not including things like tax credits um, in, in a particular area, which are obligations for government accounting purposes. So that's another big area that we can probably expect to see added to the database in the coming years. And perhaps it could prevent some duplication if agencies can discover when they want to do something, or even Congress wants them to do something, that the mechanism is already there. They just have to exercise it. That's right. Maybe refine the program terms, maybe add funding to kind of a framework that already exists that's gotten not as much attention as it might need as, as you know, conditions have ebbed and flowed over the years. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or 
how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program, She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, 
I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture And what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. 
neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.